0: Mark Love, our speaker this morning, is a special individual. He has two earned doctorates. He is the Dean of Theology and Ministry at Rochester College in Rochester Hills, Michigan. He's spent a couple of decades in church ministry in addition to the academic career that he has. But none of that touches... The meaningfulness of mark love in my life when i was 15 years old in the summer of 1974 i was counseling as a junior counselor to camp in the coastal mountains of oregon and there was another young man there who came and was a junior counselor along with me and we struck up a friendship that's now over 40 years old and which has been one of the most meaningful relationships that I have in all of my life. Mark is one of those, to me, of whom the Bible says that a friend can be closer than a brother. And it is so true. And I have watched as he and I have traveled parallel paths in terms of ministry and Academic things, uh, a lot of things have been parallel, but they, they stopped being parallel when Mark just soared in terms of who he is as a person of God and someone who has such impact and significance for the church of Jesus Christ. And I'm just so grateful that God has blessed me with you. So I, I have the privilege of introducing someone who is not just uh, someone who's coming to present at Alberta Bible College as he is this week to the, the summit, but I'm having a chance to present someone who is really a dear, dear friend, and he's going to speak to us today from Philippians chapter 4. Brother? I thought Kelly uh,
1: Kelly surprised me there at the end. He talked about our parallel lives and... Then he talked about me surpassing him. And I thought he meant uh, with my hair, that I've kept all my hair, that we've been on parallel paths all of our lives. But instead, he made up this garbage about me ascending to these heights. That, um, uh, But I feel uh, the same and more about kelly and robin and their family in fact they may not know this but um, when my son josh was um, small and we were thinking about our will and things like that um, we named in our will i don't know if we ever told you this that robin and kelly we wanted them to raise josh if something were ever to happen to us. And uh, that would have been a great, great blessing. It's great to be here. I can't come to Canada and not feel grateful. It was a Canadian missionary who uh, traveled from Western Canada to Caldwell, Idaho, And preached the gospel there and baptized my great-grandmother and my grandfather and my great-aunts and uncles. Um, I'm part of the gospel story because of J.C. Bailey. So I can't come to Canada without feeling grateful. Like my feet are in the soil of my heritage in faith, I've been to Calgary once before. It's beautiful. It's nearly as beautiful as Oregon, which uh, for me and Kelly, you can't beat that. But uh, I'm sure you think it's as beautiful. I'm looking forward to being able to spend the next few days here and to share with you this morning from the Word of God. So I'm going to begin in Philippians 4, verse 8. And through verse 15, Paul writes, finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is anything that is excellent if there is anything worthy of praise think on these things keep on doing those things that you have learned and have received and have seen and heard from me and the peace of god will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at last you have revived your concern for me. I I know you were concerned for me all along. You just didn't have the opportunity to show it. Not that I refer to being in need... For Christ satisfies my needs in every way. Whether I have learned in being in abundance or in having need, in any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of being well-fed or being hungry, of being in need or having abundance, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In any case, it was good of you to share in my distress. You Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I was in Macedonia, no church shared in giving and receiving with me except you. Indeed, even when I was in Thessalonica, on more than one occasion, you helped me when I was in need. Not that I seek the gift, what I seek is the profit that accumulates to your account. For I have been paid in full and have great abundance. And now am fully satisfied since I received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a pleasing sacrifice to our God. And I know that our God will satisfy every need of yours. From the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Glory be to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. The Word of God. I think it's fitting we passed out flowers this morning. I think Paul kinda kinda ends Philippians by planting a little flower garden, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is pleasing, if there's anything excellent, it's like the poetry's just coming off his quill. And he's left us a fragrant garden here at the end of his letter, and it fills our senses and gives air to our lungs and fills our heart with life from the gospel. Think on these things, he says. But he does more than that here in these final words in Philippians. He gives us things that are a little bit crunchier, grittier. The words don't flow so easily. He crosses back on himself a few times. Thanks for the gift, I didn't need the gift, I, uh, it applies, to, I I don't need the gift, thanks for the gift anyway, kind of stuff. It's a little more awkward there at the end. But I'm convinced that these final words in Philippians um, circle back on the opening themes from the opening verses of Philippians in a way that Paul thinks will serve the Philippian church going forward in a powerful way, that in these final verses, he's giving them part of the liberating power of the gospel for their relationships with one another. I've learned, he says, the secret of being content in all circumstances. And wouldn't that be great, right? Wouldn't you like that in your Tim Hortons every morning, right? Get a little cup of contentment every day. I'm convinced that most of us lead anxious lives. I do. And anxiety produces restlessness, And contentment's the opposite of that. Contentment says peace. Contentment says it is well with my soul. Contentment is better than a nap on Sunday afternoon. Contentment is rest. Rest for your soul. It's peace. And that we have in short supply. Wouldn't it be great this morning to learn that secret? In fact, I think all of us spend time trying to figure out how we could be content. We line out circumstances in our life, try to arrange our life in such a way so that we can be at peace if my family's good. If my job is right, if I have the position I want, if my colleagues think well of me, if I'm admired in my work, if it's meaningful for me, if my children are good and thriving and successful, if my reputation is good among the people whom I care about, then, then I could be content. Then I could be At peace. For me, I'll admit this morning that the thing that makes me anxious is the desire to leave a lasting impact, to be known for my work, for it to stand up and be recognized. And I feel like, you know, just one little more piece of recognition and I could be content. You know, just one more keynote at Pepperdine and I could be content just if I could get my book published then I'd be content but these are appetites that don't satisfy us right and Paul says I want to define contentment in a way that is independent of all these external factors in our life Contentment for Paul comes from knowing Christ. And it's not one factor among many. It's not like, um, I have a good job, uh, my wife loves me, and um, I love Christ. It's not one among many. It's not even the first one among a list that would follow so that knowing Christ makes all the others better, but you have to have all the others to be content. No, it's the only factor. It's deep enough. The well of knowing Christ is abundant enough. It's full enough to consider our lives paid in full to bring contentment our lives. When I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, back when they were writing good music, can I get an amen? I'm getting a few. One of my favorite bands was the band Heart. You know, the Wilson sisters from... The Seattle area, Barracuda, Google it when you get home. You guys can Google it when you get home. My favorite heart song was called Even It Up. I loved it because of the music, mostly, the way the horns and the guitars. and. But there's a line in the song, Even It Up, that goes like this. I fed you your breakfast in bed. Now, even it up, even it up, even it up. Which is the way a lot of us think about relationships, I think. They're transactional. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. We've got a little quid pro quo going here. Even it up, even it up, even it up. I think sometimes this kind of transactional view of relationships, sometimes even Christians believe that that's Christian. I know a minister in Texas who has a program where he teaches Christians to get what you want by putting money in the love bank. So life is this big bank, and when you do deeds of love and service to others, you're putting money in the love bank, which accumulates to your account, and you can withdraw it then when you need it. There was a book in the 80s that um, sold itself as uh, a book on Christian marriage that had a very similar idea. In fact, used the language of a love bank said men have a hierarchy of needs, women have a hierarchy of needs. They're not the same. The way to get what you want in marriage is to aim for the highest needs of your spouse. In that way, it was uh, billed as Christian service. But when you do that, you're putting money in the love bank, and you can withdraw it later when it's your turn. It'll even it up. Even it up. Even it up. I think that view, that kind of transactional view of relationships can work when people are fairly well-adjusted and emotionally stable. But look at your spouse right now. Are they emotionally stable? No. Right? This is not going to work for most of us, right? My wife has no hope if this is, you know, what we're after, this kind of transactional. In fact, after we studied this book in the church I served in the 80s, I had more marriage therapy to do after reading that book. Than before, because people were coming to say, He's not meeting my needs, she's not meeting my top needs. And so they're beating each other with a club around what their hierarchy of needs are. And it became this list hierarchy of needs became a law, which their relationship constantly, and it was no longer a relationship of grace, of giving and receiving. It was something quite different. And these transactional ways of viewing relationships can end up in some unfortunate circumstances. They can produce resentments. I have a friend who says, Today's expectations are tomorrow's resentments. That the things that we put on other people as expectations end up becoming resentments for us somewhere down the line. This circle of reciprocity, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, can end up in scorekeeping in uh, playing the martyr in a relationship, and end up closing down the very power of what would make a relationship Christian in the first place. Paul has a very different view of relationships. And it begins with that little piece we already said, I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. I have been paid in full. I am fully satisfied. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul's view of um, Christian relationships begins with this notion that uh, Christ fully satisfies who we are. He talked about this with regard to the Philippians at the beginning of the letter. And I'm convinced that the reason for writing Philippians is that he has received a gift that Epaphroditus brought, and he's afraid there's a little even it up, even it up, even it up in the minds of the Philippians. And so throughout the letter, he writes to reassure them that whether I come back to you or am absent from you, you have everything you need. He begins in chapter 1 by talking about, again, reminding them of this giving and receiving relationship they have, that they have shared in the grace of Christ. And he tells them there in the beginning of Philippians that he is confident that Christ will finish the good work that he began in them. So they will lack nothing. And then 127, which I take to be the theme verse for Philippians, he says, Now live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you or I'm absent from you, I will hear about the fact that you, have, that you stand strong in the gospel, united with Christ. Whether I'm there, whether I come back, or whether I don't. I hope I get to come back, but I may not. He wants them to see that the basis of their relationship isn't in this quid pro quo, this you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, that they have everything they need regardless of the gift given to Epaphroditus by Epaphroditus to Paul, so that they don't need for Paul to return for this economy, this circle of reciprocity to complete itself. Paul wants them to know They have everything they already need. So he says, I have everything I need. I've learned the secret of being well-fed and hungry in every circumstance. And he says, I'm convinced that Christ will satisfy your every need as well. That's the first thing. But the second thing he says... that's important to his understanding of the power of Christian relationships, is how to think about what we give to other people. Paul says, you didn't give the gift directly to me. I, I didn't need the gift. Rather, what you gave, you gave as a sacrifice to God fragrant, and pleasing. It worked to my benefit, but what you did was give to God so that God now takes a place, mediates a place between me and others. It's God who stands between me and Kelly. What The ways Kelly has loved me should be thought of as a sacrifice offered to God, who fully satisfies every need for Kelly. He's paid Kelly in full. There's nothing Kelly lacks. And out of the abundance of that, he offers it back to God in a way that benefits me. If I think of it as a gift that I gave Kelly, then I'm always wondering, when is Kelly going to reciprocate? Right, But if I think of it as something I offered to God that benefited Kelly, and I am paid in full and have no needs, now giving and receiving can be free and liberated and abundant. And for Paul, this is the power of Christian relationships. This is what makes the church a different kind of community than other kinds of communities the fact that God mediates the relationships that we have with one another. Uh, we get a lot of messages that encourage us to think differently. Um, romance is an intimacy is the is a primary value in North American culture and if we're not careful, we can think that what we're doing when we look for a spouse or try to find a meaningful relationship in our life is find someone who completes us, right? Next time you hear, you complete me or I complete you, do the gag thing in your mouth. Say, that's not Christian, it's idolatrous. To think that another person can satisfy my needs. We do this in church. We think, um, I serve the church. Certainly the church ought to then satisfy my needs. Wrong. Another form of idolatry. What you give to the church, you give abundantly. The church doesn't meet your needs. Christ meets your needs. When you come here, you come out of the abundance, the deep-flowing well of knowing Christ. You give out of the overflow of your life freely, expecting nothing in return except for the paid in full you've already received from God. And so your brothers and sisters become not people who are there to please you but people who live in the abundant overflow of your relationship with Christ and wouldn't that make a difference I think that'd make a difference in everything you know we we'd be we'd be less critical of the things that happen around us mm-hmm. and Uh, the performance that we expect from others. We could accept the preaching and the worship for what it is rather than for whether it particularly um, tickled my sweet spot, right? It would liberate us from the burden of expectations that later become resentments. If you're waiting to be content until you see how your kids turn out, stop. Love them in the overflow of the abundance of knowing Christ. Be content in that. And I think what you'll find is that in that freedom... In that freedom, there is power for them. If you're waiting to be happy until your spouse improves, not going to happen. <laughs> Stop. Live instead out of the end, abundant overflow of knowing Christ. And who knows, in that free exchange of giving and receiving, what might happen? Let's face it, to your husband. (laughs) We all know we're talking about husbands here. (laughs) You know, amazing things might happen in the free giving and receiving in the economy of grace. Am I making my point? Am I clear? This, for Paul, is the power of the gospel. You have everything you need. Christ will complete the good work he's begun in you. Whether Kelly preaches another sermon you like or not, whether you get worship the way you want or not, you are paid in full. Give and receive in the grace of God. And you will know the peace of God. And God will be glorified in Christ forever and ever. Amen.